and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth about the Tathagata's words. Good evening. Let me encourage people who are online. Um, it's really helpful when you turn on your camera, just so we can see each other and uh, appreciate that. So this is the last of our um, five classes, looking at some of the foundations of our uh, Zen tradition, uh, particularly in the context of key ancestors. Um, so we've done, we've spoken about uh, Bodhidharma, Huneng, Dungshan, uh, Dogen, and tonight Suzuki Roshi. And so before I start speaking about Suzuki Roshi, just uh, uh, see if there are any open questions from last week or from other weeks. Is there anything that's that's on your mind that you would like to know about or to say? Feel free to raise your digital hands if you like, or your actual hands in here. It's hard to do a class like this because um, it's so incomplete. Uh, it's just touching on aspects of our tradition. Uh, and, you know, there's so much, there's so many more figures that we would like to learn about and study. And even for any of these, just have to have one session is um, inadequate. So um, there's a hand raised by John, John Ryder. Hi, um, Kosan, could you possibly, before we enter um, Suzuki Roshi, that domain, if you could maybe speak to a continuity through across that, that we're going to encounter in with Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, who is our teacher, our root teacher, is there some continuity across the span from Buddha Dharma that that uh, that 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 you can elaborate on a little bit, just to sort of yeah, um, it's interesting because I'm going to read you something that. Um, is in the the forthcoming uh, a forthcoming new collection of Suzuki Roshi uh, taken from his lectures, um, and the centerpiece of what he uh, cites is uh, something that we have already spoken of in a slightly different translation from Dungshan. Um, so. 
all of these ancestors, well, certainly from, from Dungshan on, uh, they were constantly uh, referring and citing, referring to and citing each other. And so what we're looking for here uh, in, a, in a very broad sense is the Zen tradition, uh, which comes through Bodhidharma as the first Zen ancestor who uh, traveled from India to China. And then Yui Neng, who's seen as the kind of fountainheads of, of Chinese uh, Zen or Chan. Uh, and through several generations after uh, after Hui Neng, we have Dongshan, who was one of the founders of the Soto school. And then you have Dogen, who was also in, uh, in the Soto lineage, although he did not uh, solely identify as Soto, uh, but he's been absorbed in what, what's the modern Soto Zen school in Japan. And then you have uh, Suzuki Roshi, who is really uh, certainly a pivotal figure for us, but also a kind of exemplar of uh, modern Soto Zen coming into the, uh, the mid 20th century. And so that lineage continues and it continues through Sojin and it continues to me as a primary identity, as a primary uh, family identity, uh, even where um, certainly for, uh, for many of the ancestors, uh, they saw themselves as Buddhist, not necessarily as uh, exemplifying a particular lineage. And when Dogen spoke and when he quoted the ancestors, he was, uh, you know, he didn't quote from just, he didn't cite just ancestors in one particular lineage or school. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I see myself as, as a Buddhist. My, this is my family. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, I've, I read and I study the breadth of Buddhism and, and draw from all of that. And I found that certainly uh, Sojin Roshi did, and particularly uh, in the early years when I was here, he was teaching from uh, some of the primary uh, uh, sort of foundational Pali sutras and uh, and approaches and uh, and Suzuki Roshi did also. All of them were deeply educated in the breadth of Buddhism, uh, and there was a, an evolving flavor to their practice, uh, which is kind of crystallized in Suzuki Roshi. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's yeah. part. That's fine. That's, Thank you. That's kind of my way of, of thinking about it. Uh, you know, uh, it's a whole other, yeah. Uh, other questions or thoughts?
Um, Paolo. Um, Hosan, how, how is it that um, um, non-sentient beings can have, um, I, I know maybe there's a lot to this and we don't have time, but how, how can non-sentient beings have dharma? Well, so this is, this is an evolution. So not to, you heard this, right? Heard what he was saying. So this is a, this is part of a, the evolution of, uh, particularly Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. And I think that in many ways, it's the, it's the kind of interpenetration of, uh, other schools of, of Chinese religious philosophy, particularly Taoism, etc., uh, that saw all of nature as pervaded by as, as a manifestation of Buddha Dharma, a Buddha nature. And you know, this if you go back to, I think the if you went back to the Pali Suttas to look at it, you you would find you really wouldn't find it being spoken of that way. Uh, but but when the, at the point at which uh, Buddhism made a trans, made a cultural shift from uh, Indian Buddhism and found its, you know, and found a new location in China, this kind of orientation was very much a uh, perspective of Chinese Buddhism. There was a great um, just a tremendous natural awareness uh, and that became a point of doctrine and uh, and it's controversial you know uh, as I think I said in one of the early classes uh, there was a school of Buddhism that evolved in the um, in the 70s and the 80s in, in Japan, it was called critical Buddhism. And it was really questioning the, the assigning of Buddha nature to insentient beings as a, as a distortion of the Buddha's uh, early teachings. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I would say is there is no one Buddhism. Uh, you cannot put your finger on something that is Buddhism, and you can't even really put your finger on something that is uh, original Buddhism for sure. Uh, at the point at which we have the Pali Suttas, it's already by the time they were written down, it's already three or 400 years after the Buddha's time. And if you look at the earliest scriptures, uh, the earliest writings that we have, that we have a record of so far, uh, those date from somewhere around the beginning of the common era. Uh, and they were found in Afghanistan and it's very interesting because those earliest teachings have uh, kind of a they really have a mix of what we would consider uh, Pali 
teaching. They're in another language, but they have uh, a mix of what we would call early Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism. Um, so there's nothing pure. There's no one Buddhism. And so this is this is something that we have. The tradition is what we have. Uh, we have inherited and it's a living tradition. And also the recognition, if you think about it, if you think about uh, so this core principle of Buddhism as being uh, one core principle is impermanence uh, and non-self. So if you apply impermanence and non-self to the Buddhist tradition itself, it's not surprising that it manifested in different ways according to the different cultural and uh, cultural, linguistic uh, causes and conditions in which, it, in which it existed. So Buddhism in China looks different than Buddhism in parts of India, and even Buddhism in parts of, in parts of India, as I, I think I said, uh, if you went to a, if you went to Nalanda, or if you went to a Chan mon monastery in, uh, in China a little later, what you'd find is a whole variety of practices and a variety of schools and perhaps a diversity in, in doctrine, actually, that were coexisting in, uh, within one place. So um, the idea of insentient beings preach the Dharma, this is a big, this is a big uh, sort of a core teaching of, certainly of Dongshan's and then of Dogen's, it's in our lineage. Uh, and so we have it, but we have to discover all this for ourselves to see where the truth of this is. So I'm sorry, that's a long answer to a, a very concise question. Uh, other questions? This is just to say, it's really good to open up these questions. You know, these, uh, these are things that we want to know about uh, and we don't always get to ask about, and we shouldn't take them as sort of doctrinally given. Okay. Yoni. Uh, I'm not uh, sure how how well formed this question is, but when you say that there are a lot of there's a diversity of uh, of Buddhisms over even at a single time, um, I try to like picture in my mind like how like how diverse in thought and uh, is it or how similar in thought were they, and it's. How would you compare that to the way in which there's BZC and there's San Francisco Zen Center and there's Green Gulch and all of these are different practice places and there's some diversity there, like how unified, but I think of a lot of the Zen, I don't actually even know how to comprehend the diversity of Zen practice in California, let alone the diversity of Buddhist practice in the times that you've been describing. So, well, for example, um... If you go 
a half mile away to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, uh, which is in a, a Chinese Chan tradition, very much in a Zen tradition, uh, where here we're, we're somewhat steeped in the literature of koans. And we take that as a, a really important teaching device. They don't know anything about koans. It's not that they don't know anything. It's just they don't study that. So their approach to Zen, they have, they have meditation. They have some of the same approaches that we would have. But their study is uh, core texts that, in fact, then we don't study, you know, uh, if they're looking at, they're looking, they're studying and really learn the Avatamsaka Sutra uh, or the Shurangama Sutra or the Parinirvana Sutra. These are major Mahayana Sutras that um, we've, we haven't had classes on. We don't, we don't study and I certainly don't feel any expertise in those particular sutras. And this is what they spend their lives studying. So right there within uh, nominally two Zen lineages, we have a really different approach. Does that make sense? Well, if it's okay, let me go ahead and I want to read you something. I thought I would read you something that you haven't heard from Suzuki Roshi uh, uh, in his last couple of years. Uh, Sojin Roshi was working with uh, Juryu, uh, who was one of his disciples at, at Green Gulch. And they were doing, they were putting together a new collection of taken from Suzuki Roshi's lectures. And that's actually a, that's a book that's going to come out in the next couple of years. And so they were gathering and sorting and editing um, material that, that we haven't seen. Uh, but I think when we hear it, it'll be very familiar. So if it's okay, I'll, I'll read this to you. Uh, this is from a lecture uh, that was given in February of 1971 uh, at a session at uh, San Francisco Zen Center in the city. And the title is, Don't Try to Figure Out Who You Are. This morning I said you must find yourself in each Zazen period. This is actually what Tozan Zenji, that's Tozan is Dongshan, what Tozan Zenji meant when he said in his enlightenment verse, after seeing his reflection in the water, and here's his translation of the verse, don't try to seek yourself, don't try to figure out who you are. The you found that way is far from the real you. It is not you anymore. But when I go on my way, wherever I turn, I meet myself. When you take your own step, then wherever you go, you will meet with yourself. Let me read that again. Again, this is Dungshan. 
Don't try to seek yourself. Don't try to figure out who you are. The you found in that way is far from the real you. It is not you anymore. But when I go on my way, wherever I turn, I meet myself. When you take your own step, then wherever you go, you, wherever you go, you will meet with yourself. This is, uh, so Suzuki Roshi says, that is the Bodhisattva way. Tozan Zenji says that when you want to figure out who you are, the image you see in the water is not you. But actually, just what you see in the water is yourself. So the water is like a mirror. Uh, in the Hokkyo Zamai, which is the song of the jewel mirror Samadhi, Tozan says, Tozan makes the same statement. He says, you are not he, but he is you. It is paradoxical, you know, to catch your mind, he uses a paradoxical statement like this. It means that when you try to figure out who you are, even though you see yourself in the mirror, it's not you. But if you just see your figure in the mirror without any idea of trying to figure out what you are, that is yourself. The reason why it is not you, when you try to figure out who you are, is because of your self-centered, limited mind. Self-centered practice doesn't work. If you try to attain enlightenment, or if you want to be some great Zen master, you cannot actually be a great Zen master. Before you practice our way, you are already Buddha. But because of your limited self-centered practice, even though you practice our way, you cannot have real practice. You will lose yourself in small self-centered practice. This morning, I also said that first of all, you should try to help others. But when I say so, you will have some misunderstanding. Whatever you do, that is our practice. The misunderstanding comes from a selfish gating idea. It's pretty hard to practice our way without any expectation or gaining idea. That is why we have various rules in the Zendo. You cannot follow the rules without any idea of self. I'm sorry, that, the opposite, that. You, you can just follow the rules without any, without any idea of yourself. Uh, giving up your idea of self you can practice real practice, which is not based on a self-centered idea. 
So the rules will help you give up your self-centered practice, which doesn't work, and encourage your true practice. The reason why we observe our rules is just to help make it easy to keep our practice. It is the easy way to practice. You may think that to follow rigid rules is difficult to practice. Someone said, oh, I wish I hadn't started this kind of difficult religion. Maybe our small mind will feel that way. But if you know what real practice is, then following the different, the various precepts and rules of the Buddhist way will help yourself as well as others. So there, um, we have the authentic voice of Suzuki Roshi. I think it's familiar to many of us. Uh, the teachings are teachings that he consistently shared over the years that he was our teacher and they've been preserved in his writings. There's, there's nothing startlingly new about this. And I don't think you, as we read these new texts, uh, somehow we're not going to see uh, a new unfamiliar Suzuki Roshi emerging. He was very consistent in his message. Um, what I take from the middle of, of this uh, teaching uh, is this spirit um, This morning, I also said that, first of all, you should try to help others. But that is the Bodhisattva, to me, that is his articulating the Bodhisattva spirit. And uh, the practice that we have that he shared was not just for our own uh, awakening, but it's to encourage us to find whatever ways it is to uh, help others in through the difficulties of all of our lives. And this is the compassion and heart that he, he had for him, for, for us. Uh, and these teachings, Everything we read by Suzuki Roshi, um, in a sense, it's important to remember that his teachings have been taken out of context, that there was a context for when he was saying things. And this is true of, of any Zen teaching. Uh, that he was speaking directly to people who were in this session in February of 1971. And he was speaking from 
what he knew to be the challenges that were facing the people in Sichit. He was offering them a teaching for that moment, for that time and place. And so we locate Suzuki Roshi really in the time and place. And it's, it's good to have an understanding of what that was. And I'm going to talk a bit about his background and then talk about some of what uh, you might consider his fundamental teachings. But uh, every teaching is speaking to a time and place. Every question and answer, say, in lecture is a response to a particular person and a particular question, not, not an abstract issue. Uh, and that's the spirit of our, of our tradition. So, you know, lately, uh, someone in our Suzuki Roshi Zen family has created out of chat GPT, the Suzuki Roshi bot. Uh, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it, it's capable of, of generating Suzuki Roshi sounding uh, pronouncements and texts. Uh, they sound a lot like him. But that really is taken out of context. It's just taking the words, taking a style, and, uh, and fashioning uh, a statement uh, in that style. It's not speaking to a particular person. So uh, kind of an interesting thing to do. But on the other hand, I'm not so interested in it. Uh, it's kind of playing around. Uh, and it's playing around in the context of, I think, a, a practice that is, on the one hand, very serious, and the other hand, uh, embodies the lightness and the joy that we that we hear in Suzuki Roshi. So I want to I want to move and talk a little about his life, but I but first let me just see are there any questions that came up from the piece that I read. Or anything new that struck you in this that you hadn't heard before or that that really landed on you uh, freshly. Um, Sue. Thank you, Hosan. Um, I'm still dwelling on the idea of helping people who come to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I realize that I tend to see, well, do I know this person or, or are they somebody I want to have some sort of relationship with? And yet, very often, I could, 
I could actually expand my life by seeing how I can be helpful, if that makes sense. And I and it's sort of mind blowing that we could meet each person in um, not a, an annoyingly helpful way, you know, but just open. And um, that sounds like a pretty great and very hard way to live. My sense of Suzuki Roshi, uh, and you can get this, there's, there's some short film clips of him. And one is a film clip of him that was made for uh, KQED, a television program. And somehow it, it was like a video of him driving to Tassajara. And this is like in 1968, 69 and stopping at a gas station along the way and uh, getting out of the car in his robes. And there were these two shirtless guys, young guys who were working in the gas station. And uh, immediately he, uh, he went, he walked up to them and you could see there's no soundtrack, but you could see him talking with them and they met, they were engaged with each other. And I think that one of the lessons, and one of the, I think one of the lessons of Suzuki Roshi was not to turn away from anybody. And I think one of the, one of these incredible abilities that he had that is somewhat mysterious to me, uh, but I admire it when I see it is just uh, a quality of, of ordinary presence that somehow allowed everybody in his presence to feel seen. And certainly this is something that was confirmed. Uh, Sojin talked about it when we, we discussed it and he would talk about it. Just uh, everybody in Suzuki Roshi's orbit felt completely and mysteriously seen, uh, which is, that's a really rare quality. Uh, but I think we can cultivate that quality. I think what he was teaching us by this principle of, you know, helping others is like, can you bring your attention to being present with whomever you are meeting. Uh, and uh, I think that's that's one of his essential teachings. Uh, I think Sojin cultivated that as well. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi just had this kind of warm envelope of, of presence and awareness that uh, everybody responds to. So uh, we can try and we can develop. It's not necessarily something you were born with. It's something that you can cultivate. Other questions or thoughts? Mm, there's a hand in the dark. Said, 
Oh, it's John again. Now you're in the dark, John. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I don't have a lot of light, but um, uh, it seems to me that <clears throat> from what he's what you read there, he he also said you're going to misunderstand what I'm saying after yes. he uses that line, "Help others." I forget the exact sentence. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, it's the same the same thing around the idea of self. You know, he's talking about, you know, you're you're looking for yourself, but don't look for yourself, the true self or the real self. I mean, this this stuff is is built for misunderstanding and built for seeing more deeply what is at what is at hand. Right. So we're, what he's saying, I think, in this piece is that um, we do have this, we have self-centered ideas. Uh, and he's not blaming us for that. But he's also encouraging us to practice in a way, I would, I would the way I would put it, he's practiced in a way that allows these self-centered ideas to become really fully transparent to us so we're not caught by them. Uh, this is also one of his teachings is that don't be caught. <coughs> uh, we are we're going our 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 habitual uh, life and our programming is and maybe even our hard wiring is going to uh, attempt to create a self uh, and he's saying in order to help others can we get beyond that uh, you know and in helping others is helping others is also simultaneously how we can get beyond that uh, and this is this is the mechanism of our practice i think i see i i, I read it just a tad differently and so far right. as the self is as is as is as built as is has as much or the the other has as much illusion built into it as the self and there is no other i i think that the deeper move here with with suzuki roshi is always that the there's something deeper than the self and there's always something deeper than the other and that's something else and to not get he's saying okay I, yeah help others but there's there's something even beyond that as he opens this up with uh you may uh, don't don't look for yourself here don't try to find yourself here i think the same move is with the other as well My thought is that um, in the Dungshan verse and in Suzuki Roshi's teaching uh, and in Suzuki and in Sojin's teaching, you know, for example, Sojin uh, would often say, we have to read the other side of the page. Uh, so the self is constructed, the other is constructed, and the challenge for us is to be able to 
see things from multiple directions and not be caught by looking from one direction. When we're looking from one direction, that's where we're constructing something that we think is real. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in other words, to, to look through it, and this is also, um, this accords with uh, uh, certainly accords with what we would see in Majamaka and relatedly in Yogacara thinking, but I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to go off in that direction at the moment. No, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There was a something in the chat. Let me just see. Uh, if I can email, I will, I'll email you the reading. And there's another, uh, there's a question from Nina Sprecher. Uh, don't trees, for example, preach the Dharma if we know how to listen? Impermanence, non-self, and, uh, and interconnectedness. Yes, I believe that they do. Um, but all, all I'm saying, I, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, but just what I'm saying is that that is a way that our understanding of uh, the Dharma evolved, uh, and particularly it evolved in its encounter with, uh, with Chinese culture, that it, it wasn't very much, it wasn't emphasized particularly in uh, the early Indian teachings. So, what am I doing here? Uh, wanted to say a little about Suzuki Roshi's background and see if I can, if I can sketch this out. Because I think if you really want to know uh, about Suzuki Roshi's life, uh, just read Crooked Cucumber by David Chadwick. It happens to be David Chadwick's birthday today. Um, but that's, read it anyway. Uh, you know, um, David Chadwick's book is, is really, really well researched. And, you know, he was so attentive as a student himself to, to Suzuki Roshi, but he did, he, he did monumental research and, and interviewing and oral history. And so it's all there. But meanwhile, let me just give you a, a short, sketchy overview. Suzuki Roshi was born in uh, May of 1904, and his father, uh, Butsuman Sogaku, was the abbot of uh, a Soto temple uh, near Tokyo. And his mother was the daughter of a priest. Uh, and uh, his father's temple, uh, Shoganji, was uh, located about 50 miles southwest of Tokyo. And it was a small and poor temple. So the family had to be very thrifty. Uh, Suzuki Roshi was he understood the family's financial plight uh, uh, and he also 
was poorly dressed. He shaved his head as a young boy, uh, and he was made fun of uh, in school because he was the son of a priest. Being a priest, you know, in in that early 20th century was pretty low status position in Japan at that time. Uh, and while he didn't enjoy being out on the schoolyard, he was a top student. Uh, and uh, his teachers encouraged him to study hard. At the age of 12, he decided to train with a disciple of his father's, Gyokujin uh, Soan. And uh, his parents thought he was too young to go and live in a temple far from home, but eventually they allowed it. And he was the Suzuki Roshi arrived during a practice period and was the youngest student. They was 12. They would get up for Zazen at four every morning and chant the sutras and clean the temple. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi idolized his teacher, who was really tough, really strong disciplinarian. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that the legend has it that uh, basically uh, Gyokujun drove away all of his other students. They all fled. It was, it was too hard, except for Suzuki Roshi, who loved him. Uh, so when he was 13, he was ordained as a novice, uh, and he was given the name Shogaku Shinryu. And um, just looking. Uh, his teacher uh, gave him the nickname Crooked Cucumber for his uh, forgetful and unpredictable nature. Suzuki Roshi attended school uh, and uh, he was again the subject of ridicule, uh, but he never complained. In 1918, so at the age of 14, he was Soan was made the head of a, a second temple, uh, which was outside the town of Yaizu. Uh, and that temple is Rinsoin. And that became the temple that uh, Suzuki Roshi, where he was the abbot and where his, uh, his son and grandson were subsequently abbot and where uh, Sojin received Dharma transmission. And some of us have practiced that and visited. Beautiful place up against the mountainside, uh, uh, up the top of the hill there are tea plantations and in back of the temple there are orange groves. It's really, it's really beautiful. Uh, and So on, his teacher sent his students to study with a Rinzai master for a while. And here, Suzuki Roshi, he began to study, 
uh, koans and uh, to kind of hold the goal of Satori or uh, Kenjo. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi had a lot of difficulty with his koans. Meanwhile, the other boys passed theirs and he felt isolated. Uh, and uh, just before the graduation ceremony, Suzuki went to his teacher and blurted out an answer. And the master passed Suzuki. But later, Suzuki Roshi felt that his, the teacher had done it just to be kind to him. Uh, so he came home at the age of 15. Uh, but he really wanted to be with Zoan and to train to train with him. Uh, and in school, he took English and did quite well at it. And uh, so uh, he continued his training. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. Uh, In 1925, so that's the age of 21, he entered Komozawa University, which is the Soto University in Tokyo. And he continued his connection with Soan, uh, going back and forth. And in 1926, at the age of 22, he received Dharma transmission from, uh, from Soan. And later that year, he had tuberculosis, but recovered. Uh, and he began to visit an English teacher named Nora Ransom, uh, and he worked with her for for quite a few years. And uh, in 1929, uh, Soan retired as abbot and installed Suzuki Roshi as its 28th abbot. And uh, Suzuki Roshi graduated from Komazawa was a major in Zen and in Buddhist philosophy and a minor in English. Uh, and during this period, he began to think that he might like to go to America to study. So from Komazawa, he went to Eiheiji, uh, which is the headquarter temple. And uh, His responsibility there was to, uh, he was the attendant for a very famous uh, Zen master, uh, Kishizawa Ian, uh, who was uh, also himself was in a lineage of Dogen scholars. And uh, this is where uh, Suzuki Roshi began his, his education in Dogen, uh, and he studied with uh, Kishizawa for years. Uh, I'm skipping ahead here. Uh, so he continued to practice there, and uh, and he was the abbot of Rinsoin, and there was a a growing community there, uh, and the war came. There's a legend that Suzuki Roshi was 
involved in anti-war activities in World War II. Probably that's not true. Uh, but uh, at best, certainly he was not enthusiastic about supporting about the war effort and did not go, did not serve in the army. Um, and there's a, I have a photograph in my office. It's a photograph that I found when I was at Rinso Inn going through their kind of an archive of photos. It was, and I, I found this striking photo and asked Hoitsu what it was. And in the picture, actually, Suzuki Roshi is holding Hoitsu as a baby in his arms, as a little, little boy, not a baby. But the photograph is from somewhere in the early 40s of the whole Ritzelwind community, which was quite large. Uh, and all of the temple bells are arrayed in front of them. Uh, and everybody has a really grim expression on their face. And this was the day the Japanese army came to confiscate all the bells to melt them down for armaments. Uh, and you know, we, we can see that, we have the record of that. Uh, the other thing that Suzuki Roshi did during the war period was, Rinsoinen is about, I don't know, it's about five miles or so from Yaizu, which is on the coast. It's a town, it's a fishing town, but it's a real town. And uh, so it was subject to, uh, the kind of the pattern bombing that happened uh, during the war. Uh, and so Suzuki Roshi took orphans and took children into and other and family members into the shelter of the temple at Rinsuin. And uh, people stayed there for long periods of time during the war. In 1959, uh, Suzuki Roshi came to San Francisco uh, and he was made the, uh, the head priest of Sokoji uh, on Bush Street, which was, oh, I need a battery. Meanwhile, you can hear me, yes? And you can hear me out there? Uh, while we change the battery. Um, Sokoji was uh, the home of the the Japanese Soto mission in San Francisco, and it was one of kind of a network of Soto temples. And he was he was the sole priest uh, there. Uh, and uh, he took over for the interim priest uh, which was, uh, who was a gentleman named uh, Wako Kato. Uh, and Kato Sensei uh, was still alive. I think he died a couple of years ago. And we had the, we had the good fortune of uh, knowing him. Uh, really remarkable, wonderful man and scholar. And he was uh, involved in our Soto Zen activities until until his death. He was so he must have been quite old. Uh, and he was not uh, he was not that interested in 
what was becoming sort of an Americanized and sort of somewhat Christianized practice of Soto Zen. Uh, so he handed off to Suzuki Roshi. Um, and Suzuki Roshi uh, was surprised to see that uh, Sokoji had previously been a synagogue. Uh, and so uh, when Suzuki Roshi came, word of his presence uh, circulated and he began to have daily zazen. And that's the group that that found uh, that founded uh, what became the Zen Center. And after a couple of years, uh, he let go of his responsibility for the Japanese American community and took on uh, leading this very wild and woolly bunch of, of American, mostly young people. Well, it was middle-aged women and hippies. Uh, and they, that's who bought what has become city center now uh, on Page Street. And also, uh, I think before they had Page Street, they, he wanted to start the, a monastery. And they found that the land, uh, which is now Tassajara, which was the first Zen monastery in America. So that's going back to 19... Uh, 68, I think. Uh, and near the end, uh, he continued to practice. He had some wonderful disciples, uh, and some of them are still around. Uh, Sojin was one, uh, Ed Brown, Rev Anderson, David Chadwick, uh, Paul Disco. Uh, Richard Baker, who became uh, the second abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. And each of those people carried a piece of Suzuki Roshi forward. Um, and he died the first day of Rohatsu Sashin in uh, early December of 1971. So this is a very quick and uh, insufficient uh, overview of Suzuki Roshi's biography, but let me stop there and see if you have any questions. Anything here? One of the things that he did also, I'll say, At a certain point, he had to not only, I think, before he started Zen Center, or maybe it was just after he started Zen Center, he also had to let go of his Sangha in Japan. He had to, he had to decide where he was going to be for the remainder of his life. And uh, he chose to be with his American students. And at that point, he, be, he turned the abbacy of Rinsoin over to his son, Oitsu. Uh, and Oitsu is 
is still there. He's turned it over to his son. Uh, and uh, Suzuki Roshi remained here and lived at Zen Center. And uh, his wife, uh, Suzuki Okusan, uh, carried on living at Zen Center until uh, probably about 2000. Uh, when she went back to live uh, near Rinso in, uh, and she was in her late 80s at that point. Uh, and she was a wonderful presence at Zen Center, a kind of mentor to many, particularly the women. Uh, and she was a tea teacher. Lori studied tea with her. Um, so open for questions or thoughts. I think these early teachers that we had in America, they saw, just to say, they saw something here that was open and expressive of way-seeking mind that they weren't finding in their, in their communities in Japan at that time. So the people who came here, the Japanese teacher that came here uh, Suzuki Roshi, Maizumi Roshi, Ketagiri Roshi, who came to be an assistant of Suzuki Roshi's, uh, Koben Chino, who also came to assist Suzuki Roshi. All of them were very curious about this new land of dharmic opportunity, if you will. Uh, and they really my feeling is a lot of them died relatively young and it feels to me like they used themselves up on our behalf. Uh, they just gave their lives over to uh, sharing what they felt was precious to people who they felt were really interested in accepting it really interested in uh, practicing Zen Buddhism, particularly practicing a Zazen-based Zen Buddhism, which was not, that was not happening. What was happening in Japan, I think I may have said it earlier, um, Zazen for lay people was kind of like a, another Japanese uh, art, like flower arranging or kendo or, you know, some, uh, some very particular aestheticized uh, mode. Uh, whereas, so, you know, every six months, like a temple, in, see it still at Rinsuin, they, they would have uh, a zazenkai, you know, sort of an instruction, how you learn the art of Zazen for a day. And then that's it. Uh, and sometimes corporations or companies would have a, a Zazen day. They bring all their workers to the temple as a kind of uh, uh, just an exposure trip uh, to learn. It's part of the process of learning to be Japanese. 
Uh, whereas here, it's like we really wanted to do the practice. Uh, and there are people who, many people who persisted for many years uh, doing zazen daily, lay people, which was just not at all what you would experience in, in Japan. So I want to, I was looking through uh, Sojin's uh, forthcoming book, which is now in production, and it's called uh, Seeing One Think Through. And one of the chapters is uh, uh, a list of what he felt to be Suzuki Roshi's key subjects. And so I want to, to share that with you. First one is everything changes. Now I'm quoting Sojin, who is kind of explaining Suzuki Roshi. According to his understanding, Suzuki Roshi's, this is the most fundamental, indisputable principle of Buddha Dharma. All the rest could be considered a commentary on this truth. Everything changes, which is another way of uh, that he expressed it was not always so. Beginner's mind. Uh, this became a kind of trademark term for Suzuki Roshi, which was used in the title of the first book of his talks, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I see it as another way of expressing the meaning of Shikantaza. So there's a, there is a term for beginner's mind. Uh, it's called uh, Soshin. Uh, and it's, it is one of the ways that uh, Zazen mind is expressed. Uh, and you could also, I also think of beginner's mind as, uh, it's the mind of not knowing. It's the mind that, that comes not thoughtlessly, not stupidly, but it comes with some, in some way unencumbered with conceptual ideas. So as Suzuki Roshi put it in the, uh, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So Sojin often talked about just you know, the first time you work, walk in here, and I think every one of us has had this experience, like, I don't, what's going on here? I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to sit. All of that is beginner's mind. That is the mind of, of total potentiality. And this is also the mind not knowing this, not knowing mind, this beginner's mind, he says, this is Shikantaza. And that's his third point, uh, third key subject, Shikantaza. This is a term that Dogen used, which basically means just sitting or doing. 
it applies to daily life as well as to zazen. It also means to let go and arise anew on each moment or to die and be born in each moment. Uh, there are various ways that Shikantaza is interpreted by different teachers, even in, this, in the Soto school. Uh, one translation that I saw is, uh, it's not, not simply just sitting, but it's like, it's just hit sitting, just be on the mark with your sitting, be right in that place and be in that place of potentiality. Be in that place where uh, you're just open to the, the next thought that arises, the next perception that arises, uh, whatever arises to be open to it and then and to let it flow on. And that to me is my understanding of Shikantaza. When, when Dogen says, uh, think not thinking, how do you think not thinking? Non-thinking. Non-thinking is, is not somehow a blank mind. It's just allowing the flow of thoughts, but allowing them to, to flow freely and not being caught on one. The next principle is no gaining idea. Our practice is to resume our original true nature. Fundamentally, there is nothing to gain or lose. That which is gained is also lost and therefore not fundamental. Our practice is to let go and trust our Buddha nature. So no gaining mind is certainly, it's a principle that uh, the expression in Japanese is uh, toku, and I see it as a principle that uh, is really brought forward in some of the other key Soto teachers of the 20th century, Sawaki Kodo and uh, Kudo Uchiyama, uh, who often talked about no gaining mind or mushotoku uh, as uh, this basic fundamental principle. Uh, and I like this last sentence, our nature is to let go and trust our Buddha nature. So to me, uh, this letting go is just to fall back, to allow yourself to have the trust to fall back into the arms of Buddha. And just, whoops, allow yourself to, to fall backwards that way. Uh, nothing fancy. 
Suzuki Roshi didn't want us to get lost in or confused by complicated theories or dazzling and seductive explanations uh, or excessive or ostentatious practices or distracting mystical beliefs. Uh, so this is interesting uh, because what Suzuki Roshi was giving us was a very stripped down version of one of the most complicated and ritualized schools of, of Zen in Japan. And that's not what he brought with him. That's not what he felt was the essence. Uh, and it's interesting because he didn't he didn't profess to be expert at these ceremonies and rituals. In fact, he had to bring another teacher uh, over to uh, Tatsugami Roshi to set up the monastic forms of Tassahara, which to our minds, when we go there, is kind of high church. Um, but Suzuki Roshi stripped these things down pretty simply. And um, even though we feel that our practice is pretty formal and we have very particular ways of doing things, uh, it's really pretty straightforward. And what I saw in Sojin was that, uh, you know, having practiced in Japan and having practiced at, in the San Francisco Zen centers, I saw one of the things that I really appreciated about the nothing fanciness of this place is that I could recognize everything that we did in Japan. I could recognize everything that we did that we do here in relation to what I saw in Japan. But what I never saw here was any kind of anything added on. There were things that were simplified and that were adjusted to our space and also our our time and population, but there were no added curlicues or complexities that were added. And some of this is is interesting because what Suzuki Roshi didn't teach his students was how to do certain kinds of ceremonies. And uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, he, he actually didn't teach people how to do funerals, uh, which was fine because everybody who came to Zen Center at that point was like in their 20s or 30s. So very few people were dying. Uh, but now we have to know how to do funerals. And so we've, we've learned we have to turn back to other teachers. And I watched Suzuki, I watched Sojin do that uh with funerals to to consult with with uh some of the japanese teachers and we had to we got enormous help from them in doing sojin's funeral so we have to learn these things but in essence this nothing fancy is important and, yes so it sounds like Roshi like sort of instituted a lot of kind of big changes in yes. making this 
the Zen as, as we used to practice it here. And to what degree did, were his, I don't know if there were, if he had superiors or someone he was answering to in Japan, but to what degree did he have, was this condoned or was he just sort of a rogue Zen priest? He wasn't, there? no, he wasn't a rogue. He was, he was, he was in the lineage, but you know, what we experienced over the years was the Japanese Soto Shu, Soto headquarters, really, it's, it's taken them 40 years to figure out who we are and how to, how to work with us. And there was not a lot of supervision. But what I will say is something I've, I've been teaching at Union Theological Ceremony, a seminary, uh, in the last few weeks. And one of the texts that we've been studying has been by a scholar named McMahon about the making of, of Buddhist modernism. And when you look at it in that context, Suzuki Roshi was a Buddhist modernist, that what he was doing was simplifying in a radical way a practice that would fit with this culture. And so there's a, I think a lot more to discuss there. There's a raised hand. Uh, hang on a second. Uh, Judy. Uh, thanks, Hosan. I, I realized that um, uh, some of what's coming up for me is um, just a real uh, discomfort with the use of the word Americans to uh, describe those that uh, Suzuki Roshi, um, you know, was uh, creating a sangha with, and uh, that the folks at Sokoji, you know, are the Japanese community, but actually they're Japanese Americans. Japanese Americans, yeah. And so, so um, you know, the whole conversation and the work now around. Um, you know, white, Euro, Caucasian, Zen, uh, middle class, uh, um, you know, had a large male contingent, uh, and so on, and, and other Buddhist uh, communities in America. And I'm just wondering how we can frame and speak to that conversation as a way, uh, in a way to integrate what uh, Suzuki Roshi thought and how we can contextualize it now in terms of, we're also connected to our Japanese American. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, and, and, and many others. And, you know, um, I just get very, I don't know how to um, have this conversation, but it just really seems important to me that we don't keep saying Americans and right. Americans. I, I understand that, and you're correct. And I don't think this is the place actually to have that full conversation, but I will own the fact that, yes, there were Japanese Americans in the Sangha in uh, at Sokoji, and there were Anglo 
mostly Anglo-Americans who gravitated towards, towards Suzuki Roshi and the founding of, uh, of San Francisco Zen Center. And there's a lot longer and deeper conversation to have about uh, the diversity of that community, inclusivity, etc. So I apologize for using words sloppily. Uh, and uh, I will try to be more careful, but I, I want to finish. I want to finish what I was presenting, if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get that piece. I, I think the Dharma piece that I'm more, um, I mean, that's a very important piece. And I'm I'm curious about um, the sort of the 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 expression of Zen and how it came to us and how this piece of of meeting you know you were talking about context at the beginning that this important to contextualize and I think that this context is also shaping the the understanding in the Dharma expression and and I think that that's the more subtle piece that I'm curious about and maybe this isn't the place uh, for it, but I think that it's important to have that conversation somewhere. Yeah, I think it is important to have that conversation, and it's uh, it's very multi-layered, uh, and things that happened in the founding of San Francisco Zen Center uh, also conditioned the the shape of certainly of Zen here for a long time and we are reckoning with that we're working with that now so if, if it's okay that's where i'd like to leave it because our time is really short here um so i want to move through these three points quickly uh along with nothing fancy there's nothing special uh and Suzuki Roshi didn't want us to think of Zazen as something special or the practice of some special people. Our practice in the, on the cushion should harmonize with the practice of our daily life. Uh, this is, I'm reading Sojin. Zazen is not your practice. It's the basic activity of the universe in which everything is participating. It is Buddhist practice. Therefore, it is not something which we just do for ourselves. Since no two things can exist on the same spot at the same time, we each appear to be sitting in a solitary way. Uh, and I would say, adding to Sojin, and that is, there's an illusory uh, aspect of that, because uh, if we think of Zazen as the activity of the universe, we are all also all sitting together, however uncomfortable that may be. Um, do one thing thoroughly. So Suzuki Roshi, like Dogen stressed, to do one thing and totally penetrate that one thing, to practice one Dharma and penetrate one Dharma. And this is where the, the title of uh, 
Sojin's new book comes. I once asked Suzuki Roshi, what is nirvana? He said, to see one thing through to the end. Uh, that's, so the title of Sojin's book is to see one thing through, taken from this quotation. Uh, Sojin says, instead of accumulating many things to put into our basket, we strike in the same place over and over to reveal our treasure store. We have this kind of confidence. We can let go of our crutches and external support and without, without trying, our practice will give confidence to others. And the last point in Sojin's list is, your difficulty is your treasure. This is a really hard lesson for all of us. And uh, we can find it to be true. We can also wrestle with it, understandably. Sazen has its difficulties as well as its pleasures. In the same way that our daily life has its difficulties and its pleasures. Sometimes our response to problems is to avoid or resist them. But if we approach our problem as an opportunity, we can welcome and use the problem in a beneficial way that can deepen our practice, rather than allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed and victimized by it. Sometimes Suzuki Roshi would say that you should appreciate the problem you now have. If you get rid of it, another one will take its place and you may wish you had the previous one. So I'm going to stop there. Our time is basically up, but I just, uh, obviously there's more as with everyone, everyone we've covered, we could go on, but just wonder if there are any uh, immediate questions or thoughts, either in the room or in, on Zoom. What a, um, Mira. Um, so I've wondered for a while about Suzuki Roshi's teaching. I never sat with him or knew him. When he taught how to do things, um, we talked about the rigid rules, you know, help you give up self centered ideas. Was he? like um, always telling how to do things? I don't think, I, my understanding was uh, no. That in fact, the, the Japanese mode of instruction for the most part is not to tell you how to do things. Uh -huh. On the other hand, sometimes the Japanese, it's to show you how to, it's to show you. But on the other hand, sometimes the mode in a Japanese temple, which doesn't necessarily, in a particularly in a Japanese temple, and I'm not talking about Japanese-American, uh, is uh, the mode of teaching is just to tell you no. 
That's not the way to do it. That's not the way to do it. That's not the way to do it until you figure out for yourself what is the way to do it. I don't think that is a modality of instruction that works very well in our culture. Uh, but I think that Suzuki Roshi was very kind. And actually, I think he left some of the, he could be kind. This is, this is a, there's a dynamic in the, uh, in the Zen temple that's like this. It's like the Eno is kind of the, the taskmaster who is, you know, if you will say cracking the whip, whereas the, uh, the abbot can have grand, grandmotherly or grandfatherly mind and it's very warm. And I think uh, that's kind of a dynamic that, that Suzuki Roshi uh, had. I think people felt loved by him. They didn't, they didn't feel chastised by him. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Anything else? Well, thank you for uh, being with us for these five weeks. And we'll close with the Bodhisattva vows. And again, I'm really available for uh, further discussion about any of this or things that have been generated by your, uh, your thinking about our tradition, these ancestors, or our practice as a whole, uh, or any part of it. So we'll close the Bodhisattva vows. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you and take good care. We'll see you all in the Zendo and on Zoom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.